Acts 2, verses 42 to 47 says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word now, we in our hearts bow before you. Your word says that you regard those who are contrite and humble and who have a posture of trembling before your word. We, we want to be those kinds of people that, that bow before your word and we don't stand above it and sit in judgment over it. But in order to do that, we need your help. Our natural bent is to, is to be skeptical. So help us to be humble this morning by your spirit and speak, I pray, powerfully to us. In Jesus' name, amen. How would you describe a healthy church? What criteria would you use to describe a church that is healthy? If you just looked at external things, you would come to a certain conclusion. But, but if you dug underneath the surface, you would have to judge by different criteria. Um, I just, just got exposed to this in the last few days, but many perhaps have heard of the, some of the scandal going on in the NCAA basketball world. And uh, if you were to ask what, what constitutes a successful or healthy basketball program, you would say, well, wins and losses, right? You, you win a lot, then that, that's successful, that's healthy. But people are beginning to rethink that now that it's coming out, there's a lot of scandal and corruption underneath the surface in a lot of these top programs. So how would you describe a healthy church? Remember, the church is not a building. It's not primarily the clergy or the leadership of a congregation, but it is the people. And it's not just certain people that have reached a certain watermark spiritually or whatever. It is all of the people. It is the saints of God. And saint is not a special group of people with halos over their heads or super holy. It's though it's sinners who have been made saints through Jesus. So the church is, is the people of God. How would you describe a healthy church? Well, in our text, it's right on the heels of Peter's sermon on at Pentecost. Peter preached this sermon. We looked at it last week. And 3,000 people were saved. And right away, the church begins to gather, and we, get, we begin to see some characteristics of the church. We begin to see what we might call the ethos or the culture of the church begin to form among these people. And what were these people about? This new community brought into existence through the resurrection of Jesus and indwelt by the Spirit, what persona did they, t- did they put on or take on? What, 
what culture began to form among them? Well, I want to I draw out some things from these six verses. And what I want, to, want you to see here is we, more could be said about a healthy church. But I want you to see from these verses ten signs of a healthy church. Ten signs of a healthy church. I promise I'm going to get done by two o'clock, okay? So it's not going to take all day. I'll, I'll get you out of here by two. But ten signs of a healthy... I'm joking. Ten signs of a healthy church. You might say that this is what church looks like when the Holy Spirit comes to church. You might say, well, that sounds like bad theology, Josh. The Holy Spirit is everywhere all the time because God's omnipresent. And I agree with that. But A.W. Tozer differentiates between God's omnipresence, the fact that God is everywhere all the time, and even for believers, the fact that all of us have the Spirit of God indwelling us, and what Tozer calls the, the manifest presence of God. When, there's, when, when we are very aware that God is among us. So this is what a church looks like when we are become increasingly aware of God among us. It's ten signs of a healthy church. Let's, let's just jump right in, okay? Sign number one is a devotion to the word. We see that that's the first phrase of our text. Look at what it says. It says, and they, talking about the believers, devoted themselves. Now, I want to stop there just for a moment. They devoted themselves. So this was something they were doing. They were not half-hearted Christians. They were not Sunday-only Christians. They devoted themselves Actually, the NASB adds a word that I think is right when it says they continually devoted themselves. It's this idea of they constantly, actively, continually were devoting themselves to certain things. And what's the first thing that is noted? They devoted themselves continually to the word. To the word. It's no surprise that this is mentioned first. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the, to the apostolic teaching. Another word for teaching is doctrine. So they devoted themselves to the apostolic doctrine. The Spirit had been poured out, was doing amazing things among them, but they continually devoted themselves to doctrine, to teaching, to sitting under the teaching of the apostles. Now, the the New Testament hadn't been written yet at this time, but we know even from last week's message when we walked through Peter's sermon that they relied upon, the apostles relied upon the Old Testament. They would open up the Old Testament and say, look at this, this is talking about Jesus. They would point to Jesus in all the Old Testament. And we know that they would have done that because that's what Jesus did with them. After he rose from the dead, he got a couple, some disciples, actually walking with some disciples, spent the evening with them. It says that he opened up Moses and the prophets and began to show everything concerning him. So the, the apostles continued to teach. They opened up the scriptures and were teaching, and the people were devoted to their teaching. We're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Acts when, when the apostles, whenever, I shouldn't say just the apostles, but whenever we see a sermon in the book of Acts, we're going to see a heavy reliance upon the Old Testament. They devoted themselves to the teaching. Later in the book of Acts, we're going to see Paul's custom 
over and over again. Whenever he went into these Roman provinces and cities, he would find a synagogue and he would teach the Jewish people there from the Old Testament. So they, they were committed to the, the doctrine of the apostles. Sound, healthy doctrine is absolutely essential to the spiritual health of a church. And not just that, that we have a good, sound, healthy doctrine or statement of faith, and not even just that the, that the pastors or the teachers have good doctrine, but that it's making its way into everyone's minds and hearts. Good, sound doctrine is indispensable for the health of a church. Without it, a church is like a garden that doesn't have the protective fences, you know, that keep the rabbits and critters out. And at nighttime, the critters come in and gobble up all the produce. Or it's like someone who has contracted or who has, who, who has AIDS. And they can't fight off any sickness because their immune system is unable to. Without doctrine, we stand exposed to every falsity and heresy and and bad teaching that there is. Actually, the the New Testament metaphor that's given is, is that without sound doctrine, without a commitment to this and devotion to it, and it was the congregation that was devoted to it, without that, we are like sheep exposed to savage wolves. So we need to be devoted to sound doctrine. The early church was devoted themselves continually to the apostles' teaching, to good, sound, healthy doctrine. A healthy church will be devoted to that and will be devoted to it consistently and constantly. A church that is healthy is a church of the word. It doesn't mean we understand everything, far be it. We we don't. We don't understand everything, but it's a church that will be utterly committed to the apostolic doctrine. Now, you might say, but but, but what? It it was the apostles' doctrine. Yes, we would say the things that we have received from Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Paul and Peter and James and Jude, these have all come to us and we are the amazing beneficiaries of all of it, the New Testament. In fact, there's this, um, there, there's this really fascinating teaching that Peter gives us in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter was one of the three apostles or disciples that was up on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before them and shone like the sun. Do you guys remember that story? What would you think if you were there? you would have been amazed and you would have talked about it until the day you died. And I bet you Peter did. But Peter says this, we have something even more sure than that. The prophetic writings, the scriptures. We have something more sure than being with Jesus himself on top of a mountain and he's transfigured before our eyes. We have the writings, the scriptures that have been given to us to communicate who who God is to us. So sign one is a devotion to the word. Sign number two is a continual devotion to one another or devotion to one another. Again, but they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. The second thing they're devoted to is fellowship. 
They're devoted to the fellowship. The word fellowship, the Greek word koinonia, means to share in common. And in this context, I think it means to share life in common. It's to share life together. In other words, they were devoted, not just abstractly to the people that they go to church with in some indirect, disconnected way, but they were actively devoted to one another. They knew what it was like to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and to weep with those who weep. Verse 44, it says, And all who believed had all things in common. All who believed, they were together, and they had all things in common. Now, it's important we see that what is, what is needed, or what, is, what takes prominence, I should put it that way, is not a general solidarity with every human being. We should have that. But what takes prominence here in this text is a devotion to those who belong to the family of faith with us. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, those, if I can put it this way, those that we're going to spend eternity with. Devotion to one another. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 6.10. He says, do good to all, and especially those of the household of faith. So do good to everyone but especially to those of the household of faith. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5. Listen to this. I read this a few years back, and I, it's, it's, a, it's a verse in Proverbs. I, usually I read the book of Proverbs, and I get lots of, you know, kind of like things that, that are good for my mind to think on, but I'm not like often moved by Proverbs. I'm just not. I don't know. But a few years ago, I was moved by this passage. Like, I want to be this kind of person. It says this, Many a man proclaims their steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Many people shout of how they love and love and love, but who can find a faithful man? Faithful person. Well, In the Acts 2 church, there were lots of faithful people. They were committed to one another, devoted to one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, said this, we must be ready to allow ourselves, that's important to hear, allow ourselves, maybe that's where we start today, we we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and concealing our plans, excuse me, canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. Are we ready to allow that? Do we allow that? The one another passages in the New Testament, there's like 50 or so, there's dozens of them passages that that talk about, they're called the one another passages, Um, doing things with one another or for one another. There are dozens of them. These passages highlight how the the importance of this real devotion to the family of faith. And I just want to give you a small sampling this morning. Jesus in John 13, 34 says this, love one another as I have loved you. Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. So affection, 
outdo one another in showing honor. What if there was a competition? Who could show honor more? Could you imagine a culture like that where people are just so eager to honor one another? Galatians 6.2, Paul says, Bear one another's burdens. No one should be without a friend who will help them bear their burdens. Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, Forgive one another. No one should hold on to offenses. Not here. Not where we proclaim Jesus has canceled all of our debt. Forgive one another. James 5.16, James says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.9, Be hospitable to one another. Open up your heart and your homes and your refrigerators and your cupboards and your wallets to each other. Peter also says in 1 Peter 5.5, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. This is clearly not the casual Sunday Christian lifestyle. It's just not. It challenges us because it imposes upon our lives. And that's exactly what the gospel does. How dynamic when a church is devoted to each other in this way, loving each other, showing brotherly affection, honoring one another, bearing one another's burdens, forgiving every offense, confessing sins, praying for one another, eager to pray for one another, hospitable toward one another, and humble toward one another. A healthy church is devoted to one another and or growing in their devotion to one another like this. And let me just back up. I probably should have, said, should have said this up front. A healthy Christian is someone who's growing in these things. Okay? Sign number three, a devotion to the breaking of bread. Verse 42 again. And they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This undoubtedly refers to the Lord's Supper. The early church was committed to keeping the ordinances that Jesus had given them. There's two. One is baptism, right? After Jesus rose from the dead, he got his disciples together with him and he gave them the great commission. And he said, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's one ordinance that he gave. Baptism is where we identify with Jesus and his death and resurrection. We publicly say, I am with him and we are it's, it's like this outward symbol that we belong to the church now. The other ordinance is the Lord's Supper, breaking bread together. And they were devoted to it. Puritan Thomas Watson called the Lord's Supper a visible sermon. A visible sermon. Which is a mirror in which to gaze on the sufferings and death of Christ. So when we break bread together, when we take the bread and the cup of juice, it's this visible sermon. And Jesus gave it to his disciples the night before he was crucified and said, do this 
as often as you eat and drink in remembrance of me. The cross, though a scandal, absolute scandal, to the unbelieving world it was then, it is now, was at the center of the worship of the early church. They held high the cross of Jesus over and over and over again, such that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, I wanted to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. And so they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread where they could have this visible sermon and come to the table with Jesus, have this visible sermon of his broken body, of his poured out blood for us. The early church was committed and devoted to the breaking of bread and a healthy church will be as well. Any healthy church will be. Sign number four, they were devoted to prayer. Is that, that's obvious, right? As we read through the book of Acts, they prayed. This, this early church prayed. Throughout the book of Acts, we see this amazing, vibrant prayer life. In our day, we got so many, we have so many technological advances. And I think our culture is just so run through with unbelief that we wonder if it works. They didn't. They didn't. They prayed in the temple. They prayed in homes. They prayed in prison. They prayed in private. They prayed in public. They prayed together. They prayed on their own. They prayed when they encountered the sick and the crippled so they could see them healed. And they prayed when they first faced persecution. They prayed. They prayed. They prayed. They prayed. It was prayer that God used to release Peter from prison. And it was prayer that God used to launch Paul, at that time Saul, and Barnabas into the first missionary movement. They prayed over and over and over again. Constantly they prayed. In other words, prayer was the fuel for everything they did, and so they prayed without ceasing. And why were they so devoted to prayer? Why, were they, why would they be so devoted to it? Well, they weren't just trying things out. They were devoted to it because Jesus had told them to pray. And Jesus had given them enormous promises. If you pray in my name, if you ask me anything in my name, if you ask the Father in my name, pray. Jesus was encouraging them to pray. And it was perhaps not, not even two months prior that at least the 11, the 12 minus Judas, were with Jesus sitting around the table with him. And Jesus said this, maybe 50 to 60 days prior to Acts 2. Jesus said this to them, Ask whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John fifteen seven. Just a few moments later, Jesus said this to the same disciples. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And just a little while later, Jesus to the same disciples said this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. 
Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The early church with very meager resources. They didn't have high rollers, at least not in Acts 2. With very meager resources and insurmountable obstacles shook, and I would suggest shaped the world. And they did so largely because they prayed. A healthy church is a praying church. Sign number five, spiritual power. A healthy church is a church that experiences and knows spiritual power among them. If the church or a church is devoted to prayer, what could you expect to happen? God's power. God's power. God doing mighty things among them. Verse 43 says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Many wonders and signs, powerful, miraculous things were being done through the apostles. A healthy church experiences God powerfully working among them. And this is not marginal in the book of Acts. This is not something that you just kind of see, you know, if you look hard enough, you might see it on the margins of some of the pages. This is run through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 3, the very next chapter, we see the first miracle when Peter and John are used to raise a grown man who had been born lame. He's a grown man, and they raised him to perfect health. In Acts 4, after being released from custody and being warned not to speak about Jesus anymore, Peter and John went to the other disciples, went to their friends. And do you remember how they prayed? They prayed that miracles would be done through Christ. That's what they prayed. They said, Father, we are tempted to be timid and to be scared. Would you give us boldness? And then they said this, while you extend your hand to heal and wonders and miracles are done through your servant Jesus? And God liked that prayer. If you were in a prayer meeting and you asked for God to, you had just asked for blessing and all of a sudden, well, if you lived in certain parts of the world, I suppose you might think it was a real earthquake, but, and, and the ground began to shake. I think, whoa, I think you heard us. The place where they were gathered began to shake. And God poured his spirit out upon them again. They were filled with the spirit, spoke with boldness. And the rest of the book of Acts, we see mighty things happening. And it wasn't just the apostles. It was non-apostles too. God granted supernatural power to Stephen. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8, I love this description about Stephen. It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power. I want to be full of grace. And I want to be full of power too, for God's glory. Not human power. I could care less how much I can bench press or anything like that, okay? Or how cool I am. I don't care about that. 
Okay, sometimes I do. But I don't, I don't want to care about that, okay? It says, Stephen, full of... I'm getting off track. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was not an apostle. You know what, Steve, you know what Stephen's task was? He was an anointed waiter. He waited on tables. He was given the task of bringing food to people and then cleaning up after them. And he wasn't the only anointed waiter that God used. There was another man named Philip. Philip, when, when the church experienced persecution in Jerusalem and the church began to spread outward to, to Judea, rest of Judea and then Samaria, it says of Philip in Acts chapter 8, that he went to Samaria. And here's what it says. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame, were healed. Then it says this. This is a great way to end this text or passage. So there was much joy in that city. I guess so. Later in the book of Acts, we see Paul, whose handkerchiefs or aprons, if they touched his skin, were taken to those who were afflicted with demons or sickness, and they were cured. In the last chapter of the book of Acts, we see Paul is used to heal everyone on the island of Malta. He's shipwrecked. He ends up on the island of Malta, and someone with, I think, dysentery gets healed, and all of a sudden they're like, whoa, they bring everyone on the island, and they're all cured. Now, is this fairy tale? Well, some liberal theologians would say yes for all the miracles of Jesus and the miracles in the book of Acts. It's fairy tale. Stuff like that doesn't happen, right? I mean, certainly 21st century Americans don't believe stuff like that happens. It happened. We can't make this happen. We can't demand God do certain things. But we can pray like they prayed in Acts 4, can't we? God, we want to we wanna be courageous and bold and speak your name, and we just ask that you do powerful things. We just ask that you stretch out your hand, extend your hand, God, and do powerful things in people's lives. Heal. And, I mean, the greatest miracle is that for someone to go from spiritual death to spiritual life, we want to see that. That is the power of God. We can also be open to how God may want to work among us. We certainly don't want to put up barriers in our minds and hearts, strongholds that we say God cannot or must not or dare not do certain things. We want to be open to what he may do and want to do. It is possible that God could surprise us 
with what he's not only able to do, but what he's willing to do if we were open and seek him and his power. A spiritually healthy church is a church that experiences spiritual power. Sign number six, radical generosity. Radical generosity, verses 44 and 45. The outworking of doing life together was a kind of generosity. Let's face it, it makes us uncomfortable. Certainly God would not have people do that today, would he? Well, let's read. You might understand what I mean. Verses 44 and 45. They, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's amazing. That is amazing. Jesus was not a communist. He was not a revolutionary, right? Okay, communist revolutionary. That's not... Those who kind of take a passage like this and maybe others in the book of Acts and some things Jesus said and advocate communism, they're blowing smoke, right? It's not about coercively taking people's things. It's about our hearts being changed so that we are... We hold our things loosely. They are not... They're for our benefit, the benefit of everyone, A glad, uncoerced generosity among these people. We see this extraordinary sharing in Acts 4. Again, it says, in great power, With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a, listen, not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands and houses or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. If, if, if Christians are crying for the government to do certain things, they're unwilling to do. It's sin. We are called, especially within the church, to care for one another. Among the early church, not one person went to bed hungry and not one person slept on a park bench. They were all cared for. A healthy church exercises this kind of generosity. I, re- I realize it might look different in our massively affluent co- uh, country. I don't, certainly don't think it means everyone <laughs> needs to have a 60-inch TV. <laughs> I mean, come on. But we are to care for one another and for the practical day-to-day needs of one another. That's what a healthy church will do. Sign number seven. There was a daily togetherness. Verse 46, the first part. It says, and day by day, 
attending the temple together and breaking bread in their home. Stop right there. They, they were together. They were living out this life with one another daily. They met a lot together. They met publicly in the temple, right? They met together in the temple with one another. They met in the temple together. They attended the temple together. And they met in their homes. So in smaller groups, they were together a lot. They, they wanted to be together. I love Hebrews 3.13, which I think demonstrates very practically how, well, it doesn't really show us how to do this, but it, it gives us an example. Encourage one another every day as long as it's called today. Not a trick question. How long is it going to be called today? Until you're not here anymore. Right? The day that you are living until you die is today. So encourage one another daily, every day, as long as it's called today. Drop a text, drop a note, meet with someone, grab some coffee, meet, get together, encourage one another every day. There's a saying that half the job of being a good church member is just showing up. It's hard to really connect and engage with people if you're never around. And, 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 and certainly you wouldn't experience this kind of dynamic, life-giving life of this early church if it just, you know, too busy, can't do it. Um, we were to encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. And a healthy church will experience and engage in regular interaction with one another. Understanding our circumstances in life, of course. Sign number eight. A healthy church is a church where there's reverent, glad, and lively worship. Now, those seem like three things that don't go together, especially the reverent part, right? Glad and lively, okay, because we're glad and we jump up and down and we're... But reverent and glad, those seem like you're either reverent or you're glad. Reverent people aren't usually very nice or very happy, right? So you got the reverent bunch and you got the glad bunch, but no, it's reverent, glad, and lively worship. Psalm 2, I think it is, says rejoice with trembling. It's that kind of thing. Great joy and great trembling. Verse 43 says this, and awe came upon every soul. I think we need more joy. I mean, I do. I I want you to be filled with more joy, but I also want you to have more awe at God. The word awe in the Greek is the word phobos. That's where we get our word phobia. If someone is claustrophobic, they are afraid of tight spaces. There is a good kind of fear and being afraid of God. He is not just an exalted you. We were singing earlier, open the eyes of my heart 
as we sing holy, holy, holy. If God showed us himself in his holiness like he did Isaiah, we'd be on the ground. There was reverence and awe, this deep respect for this God that has invited us to himself and invited us to come and worship him. It is infinitely greater than the thought of meeting the most famous person that we admire. Where we'd be like, oh my goodness, whoa, whoa, I'm coming to meet this. This is God who gives that person breath every day. There was reverence. But there was also, they had glad hearts, it says in verse 46. The word glad means to have extreme joy. Extreme joy. Not a little pinch of joy. Extreme joy. They had it. And they didn't have a lot to be happy about. Living in living in the first century in Jerusalem, coming out of Judaism into this new Christian cult cost you a lot. But they had glad hearts. And they were praising God. Verse 47, praising God, having favor with the people. They were praising God. Praise is a verb. They were doing it. They were praising him. We were doing it earlier. I loved, I, I'm, in, I'm in the front here, so I can hear like when you guys sing really loud, and I really like it. Okay, no pressure, but I always hear it. I love it. But I think God loves it. They were, they were praising. They were giving verbal praise to God. Almost every place this word praise or praising is used in the New Testament, it speaks of not a quiet, personal praise in our hearts, but an outward, exuberant praise, a lively praise. That's why I say their worship was lively. In Acts chapter 3, after Peter and John spoke to this lame man and said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, and he got up and walked. And it says he was walking and leaping and praising God. I guarantee it was not quiet praise. He was walking, he was leaping, and he was shouting praises to God. A healthy church has reverent, glad, lively worship. Sign number nine. A healthy church displays an attractive faith to outsiders. I'm getting close to being done, okay? So bear with me. There's there's some attractiveness to outsiders. Now, of course, we're going to see later in the book of Acts that, that, and we know that all the apostles, except for John, were killed. So it doesn't mean everybody thought it was attractive, but many outsiders did. And that's what it says in verse 47. The second part, it says, praising God and finding and having favor with all the people. I think it means the people outside of the community. There are people outside looking in saying, whoa, 
Something strange about that group. Something strange, but strangely attractive. I think it had to do with the beauty of human relationships. I think it had something to do with the the beauty of how they interacted with one another. More than their doctrine. They, They were committed to truth, right? But it was more than just their truth. And I think it was more than just the fact that miraculous things were happening. Happening. I think people might have have said, wow, about that. But I think there was something about the beauty of human relationships and the depth of the relationships and how they loved and cared for one another that was so attractive to the outside world. Francis Schaeffer said this, true Christianity produces beauty as well as truth. If we do not show beauty in the way that we treat one another, then in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of our own children, we are destroying the truth we proclaim. They were proclaiming a truth about this Jesus who died for sinners and rose again, and they lived it. They demonstrated it with a watching before a watching world. They were committed to the truth, but they were also committed to the practical real-life implications of what they believed. These early Christians and the way they interacted with one another looked strangely attractive, and so a healthy church will display an attractive faith Two outsiders. Not everyone, but two outsiders. Sign number 10. The early church, or a healthy church, is outward-facing. Outward-facing. Verse 47, or the last phrase of our text, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. A healthy church is one that doesn't turn in on itself, but is turned outward in love toward the world, knowing that we have the message that is their only hope. It's the only hope of the world. And we realize that, don't we? Apart, without Jesus, without Jesus, people are going to, they're going to be separated from God for eternity. Our burden, as we grow into this, will, our, our burden will grow for our unsaved and lost friends. And we will see it as our duty. We'll see it as our duty. Not just kind of this warm, fuzzy feeling. We'll see it as a duty to tell them about Jesus, to tell them how they can escape the judgment that is coming upon the whole world. Now, the way that this passage all flows, it seems to imply the first nine signs that I went through, it's it's things that, that we do or that we're committed to. And then it says, at the very last phrases, and the Lord added to their number. It's almost like 
as we pursue being this healthy church and looking at these first nine signs we've, we've looked at, the Lord will add to the number of those people. It doesn't just mean <clears throat> that the group will get larger, but, but notice it says those who are being saved. Those who are being saved. All the emphasis up until verse 39 is on what the church was doing, and then verse, 40, verse 47. Then verse 47, at the very end, is, the emphasis is on, is on what the Lord does. Of course, of course, the Lord doesn't do this apart from human beings speaking the gospel to their friends, but the Lord will grant great blessing on uh, the the Lord will grant great blessing of new life upon a church that's growing in these ways. This kind of church that I've described in verses Acts two forty two to forty seven, this is the kind of church that makes Jesus real and non-ignorable in our world. Like it did back 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years separates us from this church, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Christ has risen from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has poured out his Holy Spirit upon us. Ray Ortland, in his book, When God Comes to Church, says this. We cannot trigger God moving in this way on our churches, but it is our responsibility prayerfully to offer our Lord a church steeped in the gospel and tenderly responsive to his presence. His Spirit's blessing, listen to this, his Spirit's blessing should not have to work against the logic and culture we create. Like, well, none of that here. Or I, I'm not, I can't be involved in that. I don't, don't, you know, just the things we create in our heart, these walls, these barriers, these strongholds, individually and as a church. So let's strive with all of God's help to grow in these qualities, right? By seeking the Lord for his outpouring, by being obedient to what we see in his word. Not seeing obedience as an outdated thing for people a long time ago that didn't know God's love. Uh Uh-uh. And by continually, continually being sensitive and responsive to the Lord's presence. Let's pray.